folks, this is John Lawrence, and today I'm joined by Will Cohen to talk about clinical precepting. Will created the Facebook page CRNA Preceptors and has become well known in the CRNA world for creating masterfully crafted deep dives on physiology and pharmacology topics to help CRNA preceptors train their resident SRNAs. William Cohen is a CRNA who currently practices at two hospitals in the Kansas City metro area. The first is the University of Kansas Health System, which serves as the regional level one trauma center and burn center. The other is the minimally invasive surgical hospital, which focuses on bariatric and orthopedic surgeries and is staffed by a CRNA only team proficient in multimodal opioid sparing and ultrasound guided regional anesthesia techniques. Mr. Cohen graduated from Our Lady of Lourdes Nurse Anesthesia Program with a master's degree and has been in various clinical roles prior to entering the anesthesia environment. He has provided patient care in the pre-hospital setting as an EMT and paramedic in Ohio and New Jersey, as well as working as a trauma critical care nurse in Atlantic City. Throughout each phase of his career, William has always taken on preceptor roles and enjoys having learners in the clinical environment. William has a wide array of interests in healthcare, including precepting learners, human behavior during crisis and emergencies, airway management, opioid sparing anesthesia, and process improvement. Saving the best for last, William thrives on being a husband and a father. His family loves to travel as well as go mountain biking, skiing, and experiencing whatever local foods and beers happen to be found along the way. This is the first time you're hearing from Will on the podcast, but hopefully not the last. We are currently developing a short series of 15-minute deep dives on clinical topics, so be sure to stay tuned for those. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Will Cohen, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. I'm stoked to be here. Let's borrow one of your favorite words. <laughs> uh, it is it is way overused. Uh, I got to come up with something different. Um, well, hey, man, will you tell the listeners a little bit about the CRNA Preceptors page on Facebook that you've created and what got you interested in producing that? I would love to. So uh, it was uh, early summer last year, actually, that I just uh, was having a conversation with a couple of people where I, where I worked and um, you know, we were talking about precepting and, uh, they were, you know, talking about how, uh, they were kind of without a resource and, you know, we, we all go to Facebook for a ton of information. I mean, I, you know, there's probably half the number of, uh, CRNAs in the country are in the Facebook group or one or another. And I just thought to myself, it'd be a really easy way to just kind of put some resources out there. I never imagined that it would, you know, grow to a few thousand people. Um, and so, yeah, kind of got the impetus for, uh, just putting it together and moderating it. And it's kind of done, you know, pretty well over the last, uh, year or so. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of where the idea came from. Yeah. What, what got you interested in, uh, like where's your passion and interest for precepting and clinical education stem from? I mean, you've got like, it extends before your career in anesthesia. Is that correct? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've, I've really only been in anesthesia for two years. And, um, so I'm not like this super veteran, you know, preceptor that's got, uh, you know, decades of students that he's seen, but what I, what I uh, do have behind me is I have a variety of different positions that I've held, uh, over the last, uh, decade and a half, uh, in healthcare. And I've always inevitably been drawn to, some degree or some role of a precepting education uh, position, uh, whether that was in, um, you know, EMS, which is where I kind of 
my foundation lies or in nursing, um, where I spent time in the ICU and, and precepted not only nursing students, but also uh, we took uh, paramedic students and paramedics that were doing um, transitioning from being in a pre-hospital environment to then doing some critical care transport as well. Um, and so always been sort of adult focused. And I think a lot of it has kind of stemmed from uh, my early, early, early days being like 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, 17, 18 years old, uh, did a lot of ski instruction, race coaching, um, and went through certifications on teaching skiing and learning about learning. And so I think that's always kind of been in my wheelhouse, so to speak, is teaching people about what we're doing. And whether that's EMS or nursing and now anesthesia, I've just always liked having learners uh, in the environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of what kind of ski racing did you teach? Oh, it was uh, we we had the uh, the Rattlers. It was a small uh, ski hill in, in North Jersey, and uh, did it for a couple of years. Um, just some wreck, you know, giant slalom, slalom, normal uh, nice. kid peewee ski racing back in the gosh late nineties, early two thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, ski racing is definitely a thing here in Maine. Uh, yeah, people are into that <laughs> in the winters. Um, I bet not much else to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, man, I'm, I'm fascinated to talk to you about precepting. I think that, you know, given the fact that anesthesia programs pretty much leave a lot of the clinical education up to practicing CRNAs to deliver in the clinical environment, why do you think that, I mean, it, it, it kind of boggles my mind that we don't have formal training in precepting. I mean, why, why do you think that is? It, like you, you go through a clinical program in an anesthesia program and at no point do they sit you down and teach you a class. I'm like, okay, you're going to be a clinical educator sometime. Um, let's talk about what that means. Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> I think there is, I think there are in, in running the preceptor page, I've talked to a lot of preceptors and seen some really, really high end, you know, precepting programs that are offered through various uh, universities that have uh, nurse anesthesia programs, but it's definitely not the norm. Um, there may be only a few uh, resources out there that are, um, whether it's a formal education, uh, online CE, I know the AANA has a, a preceptor uh, program that they have, but, uh, you know, I think what it, what it boils down to is you have X amount of time, whether it's 27 months or 36 months to take somebody from being a, you know, critical care RN and groom them and mold them into a, uh, you know, provider that uh, can function reasonably well. And, and, you know, let's face it, not kill people, you know, giving anesthesia. And then anything that comes post boards, um, you know, is uh, kind of in this nebulous space of what you want to make your career. And so, you know, there's just not enough room in a curriculum for teaching somebody who's trying to learn themselves what uh, teaching anesthesia would be like. But I do think that there's definitely a space out there for whether it's, you know, at the end of a program or even just a, a short, you know, four to eight hour uh, chunk of a day, a bonus curriculum, something where you can go through your senior uh, SRAs and teach them what teaching is and, and going over certain learning theory and, and how to precept, because I know there's uh, some programs where you graduate and you go from being a student one day and literally, you know, the week after you've passed boards, you're 
back in the same OR where you were as a student and you have a student with you. Yeah. And for so sure. it's, it's, it can be, you know, as you're developing your practice, it can be a little challenging to then help somebody else, you know, groom their practice. And, you know, just the, not even the knowledge aspect, but the interpersonal communication and expectation setting that, that, that comes along with uh, having somebody with you is challenging. So I think definitely having a, a, you know, little bit of a non-pressured formal uh, discussion or education, you know, at the end of a program, it, it would just set up preceptors, you know, to be that much better. Because really, like you said, we are the, the foot soldiers of, of anesthesia programs. And so much of the student's success or failure lies on their performance in an OR, in a practical setting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I would love to talk to professors out there that have robust kind of preceptor training programs as part of their baseline education for CRNAs. That'd be interesting to follow up with. Maybe we'll find those people mm -hmm. through your Facebook group. Um, I also think it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, some SRNAs graduate, become CRNAs, and then almost immediately are charged with being preceptors to SRNAs, even though, you know, like in the first month of clinical, we give our new graduates a full year before they're asked to precept uh, any SRNAs or other learners in their, in their um, ORs. Cause I, I think it's important for people to kind of get their legs under them as a clinician first. It's not just, like you said, it's not just about the didactic knowledge, but it's about that, you know, professionalization and can you stand in that kind of space as the anesthesia provider in the OR before you're responsible for teaching somebody else how to do that. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think just like everything, there is a bell curve to it. And some, some providers are probably, you know, more than proficient after a few months of, of practice and they're, you know, able to take students. And then there's some providers that probably need a full year or two or more of sort of getting their legs under them and, uh, you know, developing their own practice and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And I know that there are certain, you know, limitations uh, in terms of preceptor sites. So sometimes it's not an option where you have to take a student as soon as you are, you know, board certified. Because um, just there's not a whole lot of whether there's competition or there's just not enough learning sites in the area. Uh, so there's, you know, certain limitations just from our own uh, landscape that set people up for having to take students maybe earlier than they should have students. Um, but that's a sort of a, you know, I don't want to say unique situation, but individualized. Yeah. It's like area -wise. a yeah, site specific kind of situation. Mm -hmm. Some, something for new grads to certainly think about as they're pursuing or really SRNAs think about as they're pursuing employment, something mm -hmm. to ask about, you know, maybe you're doing your job interview or whatever. But uh, back to, yeah, back to precepting specifically, what do you think, what, how do you see the role of a clinical preceptor? I mean, what, what kinds of things should they be focusing on with the SRNAs in the ORs? Are, are they, should they be teaching didactic information? Is that more the responsibility of the professors in the university? Are they just looking at translating that knowledge into the practical application? Like, what do you really see the role as uh, for clinical preceptors? You know, I think one of the one of the greatest things about being a preceptor is you have no curriculum necessarily. You can, if you have an interesting case, um, you talk about something very specific to that case. If you're doing a pheochromocytoma, you have a, an abundance of things to discuss. If you're in a room that you're doing laparoscopic cholecystectomies all day, there's nothing that says you have to talk about, you know, the gallbladder for 12 hours. You talk about anything. And that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, precepting 
is in certain times an open book. And I think as a student is new, you have to look at a student almost as a parent looks at a, at a child uh, and not to demean the student, but you, you wouldn't let your two-year-old cross the street by themselves. And so I think the same type of, you know, position that you take in terms of what you're going to allow your student to do and what you're going to ask of your student and then also what your student should expect of you is going to change as their mature, you know, maturation process through their uh, experience goes. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a preceptor to a senior student if they're assigned to your room that day to sit in the corner and to oversee their anesthesia and to kind of give them a wider berth. But you wouldn't do that to somebody who obviously has been in the OR for a week or two or even yeah. a month or two. Um, so I think that in my personal experience, the best thing you can do is sometimes engage students in a comfortable uh, topic where they feel you know, somewhat grounded, where they have a firm or semi-firm grasp on the material, whether that's in a, you know, about a didactic topic or about a practical topic and move from what's comfortable to the uncomfortable. And I think, you know, in talking with a lot of preceptors, you know, we allow students to sort of go through the routine of, of providing the anesthesia, but we should be there to also challenge them and to move them from that comfort zone to the non-comfortable zone, not being unsafe, but, um, you know, showing them alternate techniques for inserting an LMA or, you know, uh, having them start an IV on a patient who might be, you know, draped from head to toe and you know, say, find an IV site. Um, patient may not necessarily get a second IV, but, you know, this is surgery and you should be able to put one in. And so whether it's practical or knowledge based, you know, the, the focus can be whatever you want it to be. And that's a huge benefit to being a great preceptor. And you don't even have to necessarily be an expert in everything. But what I tell people is grab a few things, read all about them. And if that's the knowledge that you want to pass on, then you're going to look like a rock star and your students are going to come out smelling and looking and talking like a rock star about that topic. And if, <laughs> if, if yeah. more people did that, you're going to have a bunch of rock stars out there. Yeah, for and sure. So, you know, that's that's kind of the broad overview of, of what makes precepting really a unique, uh, you know, in communication pathway between two people. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's a little bit like the Wild West. You know, there's not there's not a there's not a set curriculum that CRNAs need to follow. You have a lot of flexibility uh, and creative potential with what you're doing uh, with the SRNAs. Your story there reminded me of a physician anesthesiologist that was uh, one of my preceptors in anesthesia school, mm -hmm. she probably had five or six, you know, like anywhere from like a five to 10 minute talk on something that she could, you know, write out on like, kind of like the back of a napkin. Of course, it's not a napkin because yep. we're in operating rooms, but like, you know, she'd have like, you know, a little scratch piece of paper and, you know, she would talk about obstructive sleep apnea and why that's so important mm -hmm. and then write heart failure and the principles related to right heart failure and why that's significant and how untreated sleep apnea was like problematic for patients. And she could give these little pitches, you know, while you're waiting for an OR to get set up and you're hanging out in pre-op or, you know, during, uh, you know, she would come in and give the CRNA a break and then hang out with us as the students and kind of give a little five, 10 minute pitch on some topic. But she had like, 
you know, just five or six of these topics that she would kind of teach everybody. And she was really good at talking about those things. And like you said, it may not be, you know, like the depth of knowledge of Miller's anesthesia volume one and two, but you got five or six talks that you can deliver really good, or maybe even just two or three, that's going to be impactful for the students that you work with. Absolutely. And, you know, I even found myself in doing the, some of the posts for the Facebook group, I kind of felt bad for the students that, that I was interacting with for those few months that I was overlapping between the, you know, the creating a Facebook group and then going back to the OR and, and talking about other things with the students, because I really did pick up, you know, and just going back and, and trying not to be a marginal CRNA, trying to be a really good, you know, provider and going over neuromuscular blockade and train of four ratios and some of the data and, you know, studies and, you know, what really delving deep into, you know, what makes a fetal neuromuscular receptor different from an adult and, you know, really diving deep into a few, just a few different topics and then passing that knowledge along. Yeah. And I found that to be, one of the one of the best things you see, you don't have to be a general you know knowledgeable person you just pick a few things and you pass it along and i feel like that's a really effective way to make your students smarter better and ultimately help the profession yeah now i want to talk to you about this idea of like ratcheting up challenge and comfort and discomfort and in mm-hmm. that whole domain because i think this is probably one of the hardest things and one of the most problematic things that we see in clinical education, where should the challenge come from and how do CRNA preceptors walk that line between getting this SRNA out of their comfort zone while still being supportive? Because I, th- I think that a lot of clinical preceptors out there, they see the way to ratchet up the challenge is to be condescending to the SRNA or to put them down if they don't know something or to quote pimp them on an endless mm-hmm. array of questions that they may not be prepared to talk about. Cause you kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, like, Hey, pick a topic where they've got some foundational knowledge and have a discussion about that and maybe move them a little bit out of their comfort zone. So they've got something to go home and look up or whatever. But, uh, could you speak to a minute about that? Like, you know, how do we set appropriate challenge in, and where is there space for being supportive as a precept in that realm? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in, in doing research and trying to figure out uh, methods for precepting and, and kind of delving into the science and psychology of, of education, because that's really what preceptors are, your educators, um, come across, you know, numerous different things. You, you look at uh, novice to beginner to, you know, experienced and expert mastery levels, but it's hard to not be condescending or or you know, be shitty to somebody and, and challenging them. But it's really in how you deliver the question and how you frame and structure the expected response. And so, you know, if you're, if you're asking somebody a question, a student, you know, whether it's on a clinical topic or a practical topic, if you're hurt or unable to be supportive of their struggle, then you are going to come off as being condescending. Or if you're not able to sort of circumnavigate their response, if they're giving you an incorrect response, or they're not exactly on point, some cajoling, some you know correcting can go a long way. And there's this theory of the structure of observed learning outcomes that I've discovered has helped me help students. And you, you move from, a, uh, you know, a pre-structural sort of overview of a task 
and then you kind of move forward as the student has moved forward through their their time. I mean, your expectations of a freshman student are going to be different, obviously, than a senior student. But even in a short eight or 10, 12 hour day, you hope to move them from sort of a, you know, concrete pre-structural thinker to now being able to think about it in in an abstract way or, you know, how does this relate to, you know, a different pathology? For example, talk about FIO2, something pretty simple. We, we talk about FiO2 in the OR, but uh, we don't really dive into what the pulmonary dynamics and what the ramifications are of giving somebody, uh, you know, 0.99 FiO2. And when you start to peel back the layers of, okay, what does a patient need? What is the importance of, you know, delivering an FiO2 of 1 versus 0.8 or 0.5 or 0.3? What does it do on the at the alveolar level. And as you start to push your student um, without making them feel inadequate or you know, knowledgeable about a topic, you can open up their eyes. And then what I like to do is sort of almost like a comedian where you open up and you make a couple of jokes and you come back to that original sort of statement. It's the same thing with precepting. You start with something they know, you move them to an area that they you know are not necessarily comfortable with. You start to make some relational uh, correlations and some relational uh, links in their mind, and then you bring it back to something they may not have been sure about. What I like to ask students a lot of times is, is there a topic you're struggling with? Is there a topic that you are not comfortable with? And because we go into it knowing that they're not comfortable, they're more comfortable talking about it because they have already expressed that they're not sure about it. So that means that anything that they kind of give you as an answer, it's it's not going to be held against them. Right. And right. so, you know, trying to, trying to get back to the original uh, statement is how not to be kind of condescending. It, it really goes to how you structure and frame your, your interactions and what your expectations are of them. You know, if you're cutting them off or if you're not giving them good feedback, encouraging them, then they're going to take it as being negative and not want to venture out of their own comfort zone to give you a wrong answer if they feel that they're going to be punished. And that's, you know, we want, we want people to give us wrong answers. You know, we, that way they, there's an opportunity for corrective action. Yeah. That's really interesting. The idea that we want people to give us wrong answers, right? I think that, yes. I think there's just a shift there for CRNAs to realize that, you know, there's a little bit of empathy involved that you should remember, like, you didn't show up with all the information and you yourself had to go through this process of learning things and kind of stamping out ignorance along the way. It's not going to be any different for your SRNAs, but also like just along that theme of just recognizing that they're not going to come knowing everything. And you want to kind of find the boundaries of their knowledge and then help them expand that a little bit more but doing that in a way to where, in my opinion, where I think if they feel like they're supported, if they feel like it's a safe space, then they're safe to be wrong. They're safe to say something maybe incorrect or, or just say, I don't know. And they know they're going to learn something and not just get hammered for that or put down for that. Because that just makes, I think, people just feel shitty and you know they're going to clam up. It's just adult learning theory. Like, I think you're going to have a harder time learning things if you feel like you're in an adversarial environment than if you're in a safe environment for learning. And the way CRNAs act and frame things is so important in that area. 
Absolutely. I can think back to preceptors that I've had, you know, whether it's CRNA preceptors or nursing preceptors or, or, you know, going back to when I was really young and being, you know, with paramedic preceptors and, you know, there were certain preceptors where you clicked with them. They were excited to have you there. They may not have been having the best day, but you were not the reason for their day to be poor. They were happy to have you. And then there were others that were not happy to have you and couldn't care less to, you know, interact with you or ask you questions, even though you may be eager, they did not want to meet you at that point. And so, you know, you can look back and and think, I don't want to be like that. I'd rather have somebody, you know, who may be a little nervous, but excited, be able to express and, and show, you know, that they may know something and to, you know, expand their knowledge uh, along the way. Yeah. I had a CRNA one time in the clinical environment. I, it was like, I don't know, shortly after 6 a.m. And I had just introduced myself. And basically, as part of her introduction, she said, I just want to let you know, my path to anesthesia school was absolute hell. And I don't think yours should be any easier. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a horrible day. And it was like every yeah. opportunity she got, she just she was just rude and condescending and mean. And, you know, I, I don't remember anything she taught me clinically that day. I'm sure there was stuff, but what got seared in my mind is that I don't want to be like that. As you know, I thought in that, as she was saying that I was like, but you don't have to be like that. Like you had a terrible clinical experience and you can break that cycle. Like you can break that chain. You don't have to carry that forward and perpetuate those horrendous experiences for other SRNAs. You can choose to teach in a way that is more effective and more supportive and so I think, I mean, she taught me a really important lesson, but it was that I didn't want to be like that as a CRNA. Yeah, it's funny because, you, you know, everybody can think back and you always can picture at least one preceptor that you had been assigned to and you you dreaded those days. You're like, oh, don't want to be subject to that person for 10, 12 hours because you just know they're not interested in having a student. They must just work at a place that has students and on occasion they're stuck with them and that's how they view it. And unfortunately we're doing, and I look at it from a much, you know, instead of looking at just a student preceptor relationship, you have to look at it as a professional relationship in terms of your, every person that comes through your OR with you is going to be affected by how you interact with them. And if you have poor students that are poorly trained, you're not going to have great CRNAs, even though they might have the the board certification, you're not going to have anybody that's dynamic or, you know, able to troubleshoot. And you're going to have just somebody who there's twist the dial on the vaporizer. Yeah. And that's not what we should be putting out. And we should be precepting people to be the most knowledgeable people in a room about anesthesia. Yeah. I think that preceptors, I think CRNAs sometimes feel like if they're nice, then they're being soft. You know, if they're being supportive, then they're not demanding clinical excellence. And I think there's a way to be supportive and and to recognize what you just said that, you know, this SRNA is going to be my colleague someday, maybe not here, but at least professionally in the States, they may take care of, I mean, it's a small community. They may take care of my loved ones or my friends or, or other colleagues I think there's a professionalization, there's a socialization that goes along in precepting as well, uh, and that you can be supportive, even nice or kind or compassionate or empathetic, while also demanding 
clinical excellence and helping them explore the domains where they are not versed in, you know, to get outside of their comfort zone. And I think too, uh, you know, some of the most important lessons that we can pass along is not necessarily even didactic or uh, skill-based. It's, it's how to fulfill that role of being an advanced practice provider um, responsible for your own actions and who is going to be put in situations that kind of demand sometimes a controversial or adversarial approach to what's going on in the room. Uh, I can think back to one specific example where I told a student who I had a very, very good re- working relationship with, I told him he was being too nice and you're being too polite and you're being too nice and it is affecting or could affect what's happening with the patient. You're not being aggressive enough. You're not being assertive enough. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to tell somebody no or to stop or to wait. And it was a turning point for him because nobody had ever told him that before. Yeah. They had allowed him to kind of continue in this sort of pacifist role that the student sometimes occupies. Um, but, you know, even just saying like, oh, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate, you know, just the language, the abundance of words that he used. I said, you need to be a little bit more curt, a little bit more to the point. And if you don't say please and thank you every time, it's not a big deal. I come from the East Coast where please and thank you are, are optional. And, <laughs> you know, the uh, he was like, I, I, I've never been told that and I appreciate it. And it was a, you know, kind of a harder conversation, but it had nothing to do with anesthesia yeah, or, yeah. or, or clinical knowledge. It was, you, you know, kind of a hard conversation that he needed to hear and said, stop being so nice. Be able, you know, be aggressive, be assertive. It's okay. Well, I think the environment that we work in is very different than what ICU nurses are used to. You know, the, the operating room is like a workshop for human bodies and Mm -hmm. there's a functionality to it where, you know, in a way you're there to, yeah, you know, be conversational and social, but you're also there to get things done. And the role that you have is a role that is singular in the operating room. No one, no one else is providing anesthesia in there. Right. So like you're the one that's got the eyes on the patient's physiology while, the nurse is supporting the whole scene. The surgeons are involved in the task that's right in front of them. And so there are times where you have to have that assertive role to speak up, to command that space. And that's a different, and, and to be, to be a provider, right. To be someone who's making decisions and communicating those decisions, uh, collaboratively sure, but like, you fill a singular role in that room. And I think that's different than where a lot of IC nurses are coming from. It's a, it's a new level of uh, professionalization, a new level of autonomy, a new level of leadership that they have to learn in the operating room. And that's on CRNAs to help them understand that. Absolutely. And I think it's, a, I think it's something that may not get as much focus or attention as some of the clinical topics or practical topics because yeah. that acclimatization to that role that is hard. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be a paramedic and, and to work in a, you know, semi or, you know, fully autonomous environment where, you know, you're, you're sort of simulating and we're, or, or, you know, synthesizing a lot of information at, at one time and making a, you know, presumptive diagnosis and then following through with your treatment and then owning your treatment. Um, you know, whereas if you miss something, you kind of took the heat for it. Um, and that's very different than being in the ICU where you're, you know, the hands and, and, you know, the brains 
as well, but also more so than anything else, you're the you're the bedside provider that's you know administering the care. Yeah. And to go from you know obviously that role to being now the person that's not only carrying it out but also having to make those decisions, it's it's a tough transition, and that's where I think preceptors definitely have a huge role to play in, in moving somebody from that bedside nurse you know environment to being in that role as a provider. Yeah, I think, and, and I think what we're getting at too, is there's such a wide variation in SRNA experience. You know, you take a seasoned paramedic and get them through nursing school and ICU training, and then into the anesthesia training, that's very different than, you know, or even a, even a seasoned ICU nurse or someone who came mm-hmm. from the ER and then went through critical care that's, you know, got five plus, you know, 10, 15 years of ICU nursing experience. That's very different than someone who shoots through, you know, four-year undergrad program, one year of ICU, they're in their early to mid twenties and they're in Mm -hmm. in, an anesthesia training program and they haven't learned that, like, how do I, and and then there's personality difference. You know, some people are that like more of an aggressive type. They don't mind using their voice and their body to fill a space, you know, but then there's other folks that they're young and maybe their personality is one where they're more shy or non-confrontational, but they still have to learn that role of being the anesthesia provider in the room. Absolutely. And like your previous podcast about the crisis management and dealing with crisis, everybody's going to deal with a crisis in the OR, no matter, you know, whether what type of practice model you work in or whatever type of anesthesia you're doing, you're, you're for sure going to come across some type of crisis. And being a good communicator and, and being, you know, assertive and, and taking command and, and not getting flustered and, and sort of, uh, you know, being able to let you controlling the situation and not letting the situation controlling you, it takes practice and it takes deliberate practice, you know, and it starts with, with people, you know, in the preceptor student relationship role, you know, asking a student, what would you do if this went wrong? What would you do if, you know, this failed? Yeah. And going through the scenarios. So let's talk about like a day in the OR. Are there specific things that, you know, say you're a preceptor, you're CRNA, and it's your first day working with somebody in the OR and they show up at, you know, six o'clock. I mean, they're probably there earlier than that. But anyway, you interface with them either the night before or the day of. Are there things that a CRNA should do, tips that you would have to get that day going well, things that are really effective for starting the day off well or, or managing the whole whole day through, all the way through when the day's over and you're wrapping up? That's a great, great question. I think, you know, the communication has to start the night before. When I was going through school, I think it was rare for us to communicate with a preceptor ahead of time. But in shifting where I practice and now being where I'm at, you do get communication from from your student the night before. And it gives you an outstanding opportunity to set certain things up. Like, for example, if you want to talk about a specific drug or, you know, a different type of receptor than may not be encountered during the case. Um, you let the student know, hey, we're going to talk all day tomorrow about uh, just as an FYI. And now you're making that student not only read about the case, but also about SUFEN or, you know, a specific physiology thing. And I think that that just sets up not only the student to be in a, you know, academic type of mindset where they're now thinking to themselves, okay, what are they going to ask me? Let me be prepared. It shows you as a preceptor that the student did do some reading or, you know, may not have done what they should have done and may not be as prepared and kind of goes to speak to the type of student that they are. So you can get an even 
deeper evaluation of how invested they are in their, you know, clinical experience. You know, and then the morning of, I think it's important to be supportive, ask them if they need anything and just tell them, I'm going to look over what you've done. It doesn't mean that uh, you did anything wrong. I may have some preferences that uh, are different than yours, but I will explain anything that I change about your setup and just being very open and honest. You know, I think there's sometimes we don't want to step on toes or, you know, we're letting them do their own thing, which is fine, but it depends on your comfort level. And sometimes they may not set things up like you because they may not think like you. And if you have a, you know, specific way to, you know, tape the tube or, you know, set up an IV site or do something, it's important to let them know ahead of time that, hey, this is my preference and you know, I, I do it this way and we can do it your way, but I'll show you and tell you kind of why I do it my way. And if you like it, great. If not, no big deal. You can do it your way any other time. Yeah. Um, you know, so just being flexible, but also providing some structure to their initial interactions, especially never having a student before that you may not have interacted with prior. It's important to set up that interaction on a positive note and, you know, set those expectations that you're there to help them, but also you're going to be, you know, asking them questions about the topic that you sent them the night before and that they have any questions about the case that they're doing and tell them, you know, Hey, the surgeon has a preference to do it this way. And they want, they, you know, they like things done, you know, under a spinal versus general. So, you know, just talking about the anesthesia that'll be delivered during the day and then, you know, starting that case off right and having that patient feel comfortable with the student. And one of the big topics that always comes up is how do you introduce or how should the students introduce themselves? Having an agreed upon way to just even introduce the student. Uh, you know, one of the common ways that I'll introduce a student is this is uh, John Smith. He is a critical care nurse who is pursuing a doctoral degree in nurse anesthesia. Uh, he'll be helping uh, all of us take care of you today. Something to lessen but not eliminate the student role and to sort of give that uh, patient some comfort that there's somebody who really knows what they're doing along with somebody who has already passed the boards and knows what they're doing. And propping up that student, letting them flex their, their muscles in terms of their mental muscles and then also their practical muscles. And if they don't get the tube, it's fine. If they can't place the LMA, teach them a different way to do it. And I think it, it just goes back to that initial positive interaction of being open, supportive, honest, and communicating with them and saying, hey, everything I do, I can explain to you why I do it. And if I can't, then we'll do it your way. And uh, letting the student, you know, depending on where they are in their clinical course, kind of run the show or stand back and, and help you with certain tasks, but always being involved and always feeling, uh, you know, being a valuable member of that OR team. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here that I wanted to, to jump off on uh, in what you said. One, calling preceptors the night before. When I was in anesthesia training, they required us to do that. And it always made me so nervous because I'm like, oh God, I got to <laughs> talk to these people. And I'm still I'm trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Now as a clinical coordinator, I also require the SRNAs to reach out to their CRNA preceptors the night before. And now I see why it's so valuable. You know, the CRNAs I work with find that to be so helpful. One, to just just to know that you have a student gives that CRNA a little bit of a prep of like, okay, I need to show up at least ready to interact with someone and talk to someone tomorrow, not just like put my head down and, you know, kind of fly under the radar or whatever. 
and two, it gives you, like you said, all those opportunities to state your preferences up front, create a, a topic that you want to talk about the next day. So it's super valuable. If folks aren't doing that, that are listening, I would highly encourage that you call your preceptors or have your SRNAs call their preceptors the night before. Another thing you said is creating that positive learning environment. It goes, you know, having been a wilderness medicine educator for a long time, one of the things that I found to be really powerful in teaching those courses, and it's a, it's a totally different dynamic. I'm teaching people who you know, don't know really anything about wilderness medicine. They're coming to these courses, you know, but they're intimidated. They're meeting a bunch of other people for the first time. It's a very different environment, but the theme is still true is that just telling them that you want them to be successful, telling like welcoming someone to that environment and saying, you know, I'm here to help you learn. I'm here to get you through this day, to get out of it, what you need for, the path that you're on, just creating that kind of positivity around it can be so powerful. It releases so many tensions, alleviates anxiety. It doesn't mean you're not going to be tough, but you're telling them that you're on their side, which I think is super important. You also mentioned this, we have a role as CRNAs to elevate that SRNA as a professional. You know, they're pursuing their doctor degree in anesthesia and the way that we talk about them perioperatively, the way that we treat them perioperatively is so important. I think not just making them feel good, you know, but like it's a professional socialization thing. One of the SRNAs that just graduated from the local program was telling me that, you know, when they first started it at a clinical environment, he was at, he's like, the CRNAs treated me worse, worse than they've seen anyone be treated, like wor mm -hmm. worse than a nurse. They're like... I'm a professional. Like I'm a, I've been a critical care nurse for a long time. Like I know how to talk to people. I know how to treat other people, but the CRNA is just treating me like absolute crap. You know, like I didn't know anything and I'm becoming a CRNA. Like they saw through it. They're like, why are they treating me so poorly? You know? Uh, and I think we've got a, we've got a role in that, you know, to treat people with respect. And I think, you know, that should be a fundamental, almost goes without saying sort of pillar of being a CRNA, but, you know, unfortunately it's just not the case. And, you know, it goes back to, if you want a precept, you should be precepting. If on the flip side though, if you don't want to be precepting, you should not be precepting. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, you know, I would venture to say there's enough CRNAs in the country that if the, the grand total of CRNAs that are precepting right now, if 10% of them hate it, and you lost 10% of your preceptors, I don't think you're going to see clinical sites going out of business because, you know, one out of 10 CRNAs or whatever the number is who are poor to begin with are giving your students bad or subpar experiences. Um, you're almost going to be better off by, you know, maybe having somebody go to a clinical site where maybe they're a little slower. Maybe they're not going to get their you know, 500 cases or, you know, 100 blocks, but they're going to get so much more out of it because they're going to be with people that are going to be supportive and challenge them yeah. and show them different ways. And so moving past just the numbers, um, you know, and, and identifying people that, that want to precept and then grooming them and sharing, you know, from the, whether it's the school side, uh, you know, what the students are learning. Because, you know, like for me, I moved to a place where, I was completely unfamiliar with the curriculum. You know, had I stayed where I was, where I had gone to school and where, you know, generations of people had gone to school before me, you know, the curriculum where, you know, a certain student is in their learning. You know, here I, I, I had asked students, I said, what are you guys doing in class? What are you guys talking about? What, what's, what, what are your topics? You know, cause I was 
unaware. And so, you know, having this, uh, a school send out just, just this, you know, syllabus of what they're looking at for the semester or quarter uh, so that the preceptors know is just a big, you know, step in the right direction, communicating yeah. to your preceptors. Something so simple, it, it can make all the difference, you know, and, and students are learning about lung physiology. Let's talk about lung physiology for 10 hours and play with the vent, see what we can optimize, see what's better, see what's worse. You know, it goes back to making that learning come off the pages or the screen now and be real. And I think, you know, whether you're going through a didactic program that's integrated or separated from, you know, the school and then, you know, you do a clinical, molding the two together, having them become a cohesive uh, experience is super important where a student can think about the page, picture the diagram, and then they're looking at the patient thinking about the same thing. And we're the only ones that can really make that connection. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, there's so many points, man. We could talk about this all day. Uh, all day. There's so many things that loop back and that are critical. So I'm, I'm stoked to have this initial conversation with you. I hope that we'll have more podcasts in the future on precepting and like, and even specific, you know, clinical topics for folks. A couple other questions kind of to round out the conversation. Would you ever throw an SRNA out of the OR? And, and if so, why? Like what, what's your thought around that? Yeah, I think I would. I don't want to say ever that I wouldn't, but I think that the circumstances are probably not what your listeners would expect. I think I would be on the opposite side of the spectrum to throw SRNA out if they just were not doing something right. I think if anything, uh, if a student's doing something wrong or, you know, obviously if they're doing something overtly harmful to the patient, yeah, they're going to go. You know, that's that's going to be, you know, if they're intentionally pushing succinylcholine on a MAC case that has no airway that's prone, yeah, that would be, you know, obviously something. But your students that typically you'd think, oh, I'm going to throw them out, maybe you have to work harder as a preceptor to kind of open them up. Is there something that's bothering them? You know, do they have a family member that's sick at home and they're not into it now? You know, are they are their finances in disarray? What's keeping them from being engaged in the day? So that's number one. Number two, I would throw a, a, an SRNA out, I think only other, other than the overt act of harm, is if they absolutely positively wanted to leave. And I would say to them, you're free to go. You know, if you don't want to be here, if you have something that needs to be done at home, you should be able to leave. You'd yeah. be able to afford that, you know, professional courtesy and say, you know what you're if you're going to, if you feel like you're going to make a mistake, then you should go and, you know, leave it up to the program directors who are professional educators to make the determination as to what to do with the student. Um, but I, I would, it would be, I have a very high threshold for, for throwing somebody out of an OR because it's so important to be able to unlock what's happening and try and help them. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I also, you know, I think that it's just such a, like, unless there's an, an egregious act of harm or, or mm -hmm. just a, a horrific, you know, attitude or comment or something, or if the SRNA just loses it, yeah, sure. I mean, if it's, you know, if it's disrupting the operating room and it's not a safe environment, but I think if an SRNA makes a mistake, you know, we've all made mistakes. Um, the reasons I've heard people get thrown out of the OR more often than not, I think are just silly, you know, like yeah. somebody, somebody like an SRNA suggests something that they read in a paper or a textbook and they bring it up at the, 
CRNA is not familiar with that. So they get thrown out of the OR, you know, like that's, oh. that's more on the CRNA and, and maybe, maybe you're not going to fix that because it's that CRNA's comfort level, you know, but I don't know for what, whoever might be actually listening to who's so motivated to listen to a podcast on precepting, uh, or the SRNAs out there that may be listening to this, you know, um, I, to me, I think there's always, not always, but you know, 90 something percent of the time, there's space to turn that moment into a constructive learning opportunity. And and maybe they don't need to be involved directly in patient care. Maybe they need to look something up or maybe they need to stand back and watch you do something or, and then we're going to talk about what just happened. But, you know, I think pulling people in versus kicking people out is a more constructive path forward. A hundred percent. I can, I think, I'm looking back. The only times that I can think that uh, my colleagues or my peers have been removed from an OR is a you know patient coded, and the preceptors agreed that you know we should out of the caution for the you know students' well-being, mental well-being, we should have them leave the asked to leave the OR. Yeah, and it was through no fault of the student, um, and that I think is somewhat unreasonable because you can't. And again, I come from an EMS background where you go from one call to the next and you don't let the previous call, you know, kind of affect you and you build a certain resiliency. But again, treating SRNAs as novices is true in the sense that we need to be careful of what they're doing in their beginning. But these are not novice clinicians. These are expert level clinicians that have dealt with patients dying for them. So you're doing a disservice if you're asking a patient or asking an SRNA, I think, to leave an OR in the event that a patient, you know, has passed away. Uh, unless there was something that, you know, the SRNA did that needs to be you know, looked at or remediated. That's beyond that. That's the vast minority. It would not be in the fall into that category. It's just patient factors and surgical factors that lead to that. But you need to, you know, it goes back to non-didactic, non-skill stuff where you're going to be, you know, developing this person as a colleague where they need to yeah. build some resilience. So that would, that's my only other, I think, reason, uh, you know, you, but again, not throwing somebody out of an OR, but another reason to keep them in the OR. Yeah. 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 I agree. Um, I want to say it was through your page, uh, maybe last year sometime, Tom Barabo put out like a, a bit of a survey on best practices and precepting. And then after he got, you know, dozens of responses, he kind of culminated his thoughts on best practices and precepting. And, and one of the ones that he said that he would encourage people to do that's always stuck with me is do not treat SRNAs worse than you would an employee. And I think that that theme can come through with what we've just been talking about. You know, if an employee is overwhelmed after a code, maybe they need to sit the next case out. Maybe they need to go home for the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But many employees and many staff CRNAs have really horrible cases. They might get a, you know, 15, 20 minute break to kind of, you know, come down off of that or whatever. And then they're back in the OR. And if that's a reasonable thing for that CRNA, and it may also be a reasonable thing for the SRNA. Same thing goes, I think, if an SRNA needs to step out of the OR for a personal problem. You know, we make those kinds of accommodations for CRNAs. You know, you don't have childcare, you can call out sick. You know, you Mm -hmm. like you have a family emergency, you can take a personal day and take care of that. You know, this whole idea of like, man, if you've got something going on at home and you don't make it to clinical, like we're going to escalate this to the university (laughs) and we're going to kick you out of the program. Like, I think it's just, it, you know, don't, don't treat an SRNA worse than you would an employee. If there's a pattern, then yeah, there's a a process towards termination for an employee as there may may should be for an SRNA. 
Uh, but that would involve the, the university. So on that note, that's another specific question. You know, it, what kind of issues in a clinical environment would you elevate to either like the site clinical coordinator for preceptors out there or even getting the university involved in managing an SRNA's behavior? You know, that's a tough question because it's so kind of, I think, individualized. And I think each each program would have to set out, you know, kind of their expectations and their rules about yeah. what would be, you know, an egregious offense or a reportable offense. But I think in general, I think we can all kind of assume, you know, harm to a patient, overt negligence, constant late or tardiness or absenteeism. Those things need to be reported to the program director. And, uh, you know, it does take time, though, to develop a relationship with an SRNA to the point where, you know, they confided you that there's a problem at home or right. that, uh, you know, their spouse is cheating on them or that, you know, they're having PTSD from something that they came across. I mean, we're, we're kind of, you hope that we're in 2020 and we're a little bit more enlightened as to what is going on with people. And, you know, amongst this hard time, mental illness, you know, people talk about it more, but we don't focus on it. And it's a topic that is uncomfortable for some people and SRNAs are not immune to it. And uh, being there, being supportive and helping them along the way is important, obviously, but also not necessarily that you want them removed from the program, but it may be a cry for help. I mean, there might be a, a student who's showing up late, absent, absent minded, who may be developing a drug problem. Yeah. And, you know, by by reporting it and, you know, you're one of maybe three or four others that have noticed changes in a behavior you're going to potentially save that student's life and get them the help that they need. Um, so they may not graduate uh, as a CRNA, but they're not going to end up, you know, six feet under. They're going to continue to be able to work as a nurse or some other field, you know, and get the help that they need. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I had a I had an SRNA reach out to me over the summer. Her classmate and roommate had taken her own life, and she wanted to talk about that. Um, had. I think diverted drugs from the clinical environment. I can't remember the particular story, but, um, you know, in that conversation reminds me, you know, provider wellness is a huge interest and passion of mine. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of a Chippis et al study that I can put in the show notes that was published in AANA journal a few years ago that showed that, um, you know, some, something like 20% of SRNAs have had suicidal ideation at some point in the program and they experienced the highest levels of stress amongst anesthesia providers. So more than like combat deployed CRNAs, more than CRNA educators, like these right. people are under an incredible degree of stress. And I want to say, you know, as a, as a clinical coordinator, it's a, it's a tough role to have because I think inherently SRNAs are a little, uh, I don't know, uh, intimidated by you or fearful or, of that role of like, ah, you're like the boss person at this clinical site. But I try to really make it crystal clear, not just in word, but also action as they come on board that, I do plan to set high expectations for clinical performance, but I also want to support them to get there. But one of the themes I want to stress to these students is that I want to be their number one support person in that clinical environment. If they've got an issue, if they have a bad day with the CRNA, like I want to hear about that from them. I want to understand what's going on in their life. If they're struggling at home with stuff, you know, uh, you don't have to tell every single preceptor you work with and you don't have to tell me, obviously, if you connect with some preceptor better than you do you know, the clinical coordinator, but I see that as a role of clinical coordinators that you need to be mindful of the wellness of the SRNAs and recognize that they got a life going on just like every CRNA does that's outside of the clinical environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes back to being just a good person to people. I mean, it, yeah. you just got to help them get through it. 
realizing some people aren't meant to go through it. The ones that are meant to go through it, um, you got to help them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What advice would you give to SRNAs out there who are in really caustic environments, who may have preceptors that that are demeaning, um, that are like, you know, they're getting beat down by, or maybe even worse. You know, I've, I've heard of, I don't know, occasionally on the Facebook groups, there's feeds that get propped up about like emotional and physical abuse, even, even sexual abuse that happens from preceptors, clinical coordinators, professors towards SRNAs. So if there's SRNAs listening out there that are experiencing those kinds of things, what advice would you give to them? You know, that's a tough position to be in is, you know, everybody knows you're at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, when you're an SRA, unfortunately, in the OR and the anesthesia environment. But going to your program director and expressing your thoughts uh, should not be one that should be met with punitive action. It should be something that, you know, they're aware of. Uh, because if you're having a bad experience, that means the students behind you are going to have a bad experience. And speaking up so that the reflection doesn't fall back on you when there's a bad evaluation that comes your way. Because let's be real, if you're a student, you have to protect your slice of the pie. Yeah. You know, you, you want to be as good as the next guy, if not better, or gal. You want to show that you're smart, put in the time, put in the effort. You're paying a lot of money to be there. And you don't want somebody who doesn't want you there ruining your chances of success. And, you know, I hate to say it, it shouldn't, but sometimes all it takes is one bad experience to have, you know, the OR is a small place. People talk. You don't want that negative preceptor affecting you or your classmates in a way that's going to be detrimental to your educational success. And so your, your program director is really, you know, that's your go-to person. And if they're not receptive, that's a hard thing. Then, you know, you may have to go to, you know, whether it's a, a board of directors for a program or a medical director for a program or someone outside of the program, you know, every program is associated with the university um, or or some sort of academic center. You may have to go outside of your program to get a advice and make your case and get some advice on how to either pivot away from or deal head on with the bad preceptor. Because again, it goes back to it's your education, it's your experience. You got to do with it what you can. And if there's, you know, somebody you're constantly getting put with that's not doing what they should be doing, pushing you, challenging you, educating you, it's going to be on you as yeah. an adult learner to, to make that change. Yeah, I would second all that and just say that, um, you know, as SRNAs, you're in a program, you're trying to figure out what's going on and, and getting getting some contextual perspective on your situation is so helpful. So the last thing I would say is just bury it and stick your head down and, you know, keep your head down, be quiet, don't worry about it. Uh, like that's not helpful. Um, but I think also, you know, getting some context on it. So talking about it is so, is so key, you know, finding out like, hey, this is going on. Is this a normal thing? Am I, am I seeing this correctly? And then going through those channels, there, there are channels available for uh, managing those situations, whether it's somebody at the hospital, you know, layers up out of the OR uh, that's overseeing clinical education there or someone at the university, same thing. If it's, if the program director isn't receptive, then, 
you know, everybody's got a boss somewhere. They've got deans and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if there's something egregious going on, if there's a, if there's certainly a problem, then I would hope SRNAs would feel empowered to pursue channels to get that addressed and not just suffer uh, Absolutely. through the way. So, uh, well, Will, I think again, we could talk for hours on this um, and maybe we'll cycle back in future podcasts, but anything that you'd want to say to close out this first episode on precepting? I think, you know, the bottom line is that as a preceptor, you're the, you're the front line. I know that term has been thrown about a lot lately, but you're on the front line of that, of that school or that student's education and being available, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, you know, helping them hands-on change their practice, challenging the student, whatever it takes that day, even if it's something that you, with your senior student, you go back to basics because it may be something that they learned 27 months ago. Whatever the case is during the day and even the night before, communicate with your student. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Be open and honest and have as good of a day as you could possibly have in the OR, and which is a stressful, tough environment. And helping somebody, grooming them and growing them in their practice is really, really a professional responsibility for CRNAs, in my opinion. It's just something that you have to do uh, or, or should want to try and be better at. And that way you make your SRNA smarter than you are. And that's the goal. Every teacher should want their student to be better than they are. And I think that, um, you know, listening to podcasts, there's no reason not to anymore. There's, uh, you know, tons of educational resources out there to make yourself, you know, uh, a great provider and uh, try not to be marginal. That's what I try. Not. I try every day to be, you know, better than marginal. And uh, it adds up. And being a, a good preceptor takes work. And so you may not have a great day with a student. Um, you may falter a little bit. Maybe you'll give them some bad information, but it's a learning process and you'll get better at it. But you got to put work. I think going to conferences, looking at the AANA, being in a Facebook group for, of all things, who knew it could be helpful. But, uh, you know, whatever you need to do, be as, as good as you can, as often as you can. And I feel like the rest will kind of take care of itself. Oh, what a great word to end on, man. Be as good as you can, as often as you can, and the rest is going to take care of itself. There you go. That's awesome. Well, Will Cohen, thank you so much, man. I'm I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing on Facebook, the deep dives into clinical topics that you provide through the CRNA preceptor stuff. It's super meat and potatoes level when so much that happens online is just kind of like chatter and timber and symbols and stuff like these deep dives that you provide are, are super helpful for the CRNA community. So I really appreciate the effort that you put into those. Uh, and hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast to do some deep dives into some of those clinical topics in this format as well. Let's do it. I love it. Let's take uh, 15 minutes and make everybody smarter. Boom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Will. Uh, we'll take care, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.